Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith and thank you for listening. David is, uh, I guess as he would say, he is on assignment, although I do not remember where. I'm sure he'll tell me at some point. Um, but uh, So it's just going to be me and a guest who we will be introducing in a moment. But first, I wanted to let everybody know that this episode is brought to you by MUBI, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, MUBI's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $5.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Currently available on MUBI are a couple of classic horror films, George Romero's Night of the Living Dead, which I'm sure many of you have seen, but uh, it, has been, it has been cleaned up considerably. Um, because Night of the Living Dead was in the public domain for a long time, uh, every DVD company in the world released it, uh, but felt it did not feel much obligation to clean it up. I remember I purchased it at a Walgreens for $4 many years ago, and I watched it with my wife, and there was like five minutes missing for no particular reason. Um, so you don't have to worry about that uh, when you watch Night of the Living Dead on MUBI. Um, it's been cleaned up, and as far as I'm aware, it's all there. Uh, so good for you, MUBI. You're doing it right. Uh, and then I also wanted to mention that uh, David Cronenberg's Rabid is also available, a 1977 film that uh, it deals with infection and outbreak and is itself, in many ways, a zombie movie. So these are two films that uh, helped to shape what we now view as the modern zombie film. So, and then there will be a number of, of other horror films that come out throughout uh, the month of October. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, and there is a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. You can try MUBI free for a month. Just go to MUBI.com, that's M-U-B-I.com slash Battleship to redeem now. Or you can go to BattleshipPretension.com and click on the MUBI ad on the left-hand side. Um, so I did want to just let everybody know uh, some of the stuff that's going on on the website. Um, there is a very long review of Blade Runner 2049 um, that I wrote my reviews usually run about 800 words. This one is closer to 1600 because I guess I didn't want to let any thought go unsaid. Uh, but you can find that at the website along with uh, Scott's review of Faces Places, which is fun to say. Um, David reviewed Brawl in Cell Block 99, which we talked about on the, the movie journal recently. Um, the, uh, this this week's episode of What the Hell Are You Watching features uh, a discussion of I Saw the Devil, the uh, uh, Korean revenge film. And then you can also check out David's review of The Mountain Between Us, starring uh, Kate Winslet and Idris Elba. So a lot of stuff to do. Don't forget to check out our Fantasy Awards League um, so that you can uh, start your own. And there is a $5 suggested donation uh, for all the materials. Again, that is suggested, but uh, we would appreciate it if you wanted to, to help us out with that. And and um, I think that is, oh, I will also say that um, our Eaten Alive commentaries are available right now. Um, so if you go to the right-hand side of the page and scroll down a bit, you will see a very frightening-looking set of teeth with the words Eaten Alive. And this is a commentary on Jaws, Tremors, Jurassic Park, and Anaconda. So uh, we had a lot, of, a lot of fun recording those. And so it is uh, $10 for the entire set or $3 each. We would suggest getting the entire set because we recorded them all in one day. And uh, you get to hear a nice build. Or maybe a, uh, maybe it devolves. Either way, uh, there is a, a, a there's a line through through all of the all of the films. But anyway, so okay, 
Uh, I think that's about it for uh, announcements. Um, did want to say a special thank you to uh, Wayne Fetterman and Jim Bruce for being on episode 550. Uh, it's very exciting uh, to have uh, been doing this for that long uh, because what I f it's easy to say like oh 550 episodes I mean that's a lot obviously but what I sometimes forget is that oh that's 550 weeks very few people think in terms of hundreds when you when you talk about weeks um, so uh, it's it's very uh, it's crazy to think about and I did want to thank everybody for your uh, continued support uh, over time and uh, welcome in any new listeners we might have gotten in the last few months um, but okay so what are we doing this week 551 what are we doing well I'll tell you um, it's uh, getting to be a, a pattern here that when David is out of town, that uh, it's time for another another round of the BP Master Class, where I bring in people that I met at UCLA in my pursuit of a master's degree. That sounds a little bit more, a little bit uh, broader than uh, than I meant for it to. It sounds as though. Uh, it remains to be seen whether I'll get a master's degree that I'm just pursuing this this thing like uh, like it's my white whale. Uh, I will be getting it soon. There's a plan in place. Don't worry. But uh, but along the way, I've met all kinds of interesting people and uh, who have who've written papers and have just uh, studied things that would never have really occurred to me. And most of the time, it's interesting. Sometimes I could not be bothered at all. Um, and one of those times is our guest today. He's uh, <laughs> uh, let's let's he, we we just talked for two hours to get loosened up, uh, just to let everyone see behind the curtain. It is uh, Brandon Green. Brandon, how you doing? I'm good, Tyler. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, I'm honored to be on the show and humbled that somebody outside of the classrooms and outside of the ivory tower would be interested in something that I had to say. Uh, well, it remains to be seen if anybody yeah, is. So I mean, I guess I, I am. Hopefully I don't disappoint. I don't want to undersell the ivory tower. It's a great place. A lot of good ideas. <laughs> I recommend it to anybody out there who's considering it. Uh, you have a nice view. <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's up above everybody else. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they're quick to uh, point that out. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so a quick... Uh, Speaking of peaks behind the curtain, um, so Brandon and I uh, had lunch before we started recording and uh, had an in-depth discussion about the role of academia and the uh, usefulness, uh, alleged, of academia. And it was very interesting because um, listeners know that I, while I am pursuing a, a career in academia, I have a very... Uh, <laughs> Very skeptical. Uh, yeah, a, skeptical, a very skeptical yeah. view of uh, of academia, especially like uh, sort of the in the the higher levels. Um, you know, I will be. My plan is to be teaching undergrads, which to me I feel like is is a a bit more practical because perhaps they'll be they'll go into filmmaking, or it can just help them appreciate. Uh, ideally, it helps them appreciate the films that they see, but. At the higher levels, people are writing papers uh, and they're peer reviewed and all that. And it would appear that they are that academic papers are primarily for other academics to talk about and then not. Um, so, but you, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm done soon. You've got oh, yeah. years left of this. You're, you're getting a PhD. 
Yeah. Dr. I, Green, that's what we're going to call you. Yeah, that's I, I'll insist on it. Sure. I think, uh, but I think, yeah, the skepticism is something that's definitely felt within. So it's not just, it's not like people in academia are unaware of the perception of academia on the outside. And uh, I think it's something that people constantly try to grapple with. But in, in defense of academia, even though most of the time I'm also skeptical, I want to say that I feel like most jobs are sort of world's onto themselves so that mm -hmm. every job has its own intri like intricacies and uh i think you can find people who don't care about your job no matter what you do sure sure um but yeah i mean i feel like everybody who's listening to this ha understands the importance of film and the importance of film especially as as just a piece of media and, and a part of popular culture and visual culture at large so um if we consider it like one of the dominant mediums of the past like 100 years and yeah. more then why wouldn't we want people studying it from every possible angle? I feel like yeah. um, it. I mean, it does take some reminding uh, within academia to want to rem to remind yourself that this is important in some cases. But um, yeah, I feel like when you talk about it from that perspective, it seems obvious that we need as many people as possible to be looking at this stuff. As many as possible. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and that's the thing is, you know, it's it, it might even be a little bit hypocritical of me to be critical of academia and and suspicious of it because any number of people would um, would criticize the idea of criticism and right, say like, what's right. the point of that? I remember um, there's a, a political comedian named uh, Evan Sayet that I actually enjoy quite a bit, and he's uh, he leans right, but I but he. <laughs> He's a right-leaning comedian that is actually very, very funny. Most of them are not. Um, but uh, so I went to see a live performance of his, uh, and it was it was great. He was really on, and he had uh, he made this observation that uh, you know when people when people say say oh it's all academic anyway what are they saying it does not matter <laughs> and I laughed at that. And then he immediately moved into the uselessness of film critics. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, well, it's nice to know where I stand. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, obviously, um, uh, it can be easy to dismiss things. It can be easy to look up at the people in their ivory tower and say they do not know what life is like anywhere else. And that can be true. But... Uh, but it's not necessarily true, you know. Especially, you know, one of the one of the biggest elements of my education uh, has very little to do with what I'm being taught, and more to do with just being a part of that environment and just seeing that, you know, the people, whether it be the instructors or my fellow students, um, that they are just actual people who like movies and like talking about movies, and uh, they're not really that they're not so egotistical as that they're interested, they're infinitely more interested in what they have to say about movies than the movies themselves. Right. Um, but, uh, but enough of that. We, uh, we got to find out about you. Where are you from? I am from, uh, it's called Hobart, Indiana, which is a small town in Northwest Indiana. Um, it's pretty much, we like to consider ourselves in the Chicagoland area because of the prestige. Sure. Um, but also because, you know, when you take field trips in school, you would go to Chicago. And I feel like wherever you take field trips, when you're in elementary school, you have legitimate cultural ties to that area. So, um, okay. so, so I would say uh, thoroughbred Midwest, but Northwest Indiana, Chicago area. And okay. I did my undergrad at Northwestern, okay. uh, which is in Evanston. Um, so, yeah. That's, yeah, I think that's, it's always strange to me because uh, 
and of course with Chicago, it's a it's one of the big three cities. Uh, I say the big. Th- there are several more, but <laughs> it's it's a top three city in, in yeah, the U.S. Yeah. So it shouldn't be that uncommon to find people that have lived there. Right. Um, but it's always fun when someone says like Evanston. I'm like, hey, Evanston, I know where that is. Did you ever go to that movie theater? The answer is probably yes. You've probably gone many times. The the cine arts. Thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's um, a good one. Which is, uh, when I was last there, that theater was split into like mainstream movies and the art house movies. Is, yeah, is I think it still split like, a, like they that? They had like a name for it. It was like Cine Arts or something. Yeah. It was like a different, it was like on a different side of the theater actually, yeah. uh, where they had like the rhythm room bar and everything. So yeah. that's where you would go if you wanted to have. And that you know, giant wall of uh, like movie posters. Yeah, the posters, yeah. Not in English if you want to get some <laughs> idea of... Uh, the putting on of airs of uh, the that theater in Evanston, um, but uh, so okay, so you went to Northwestern. Your major was film, I would assume. Yeah, it was okay. uh, film ra- or radio, TV, film. Radio oh. was only in there as a formality. I don't know if anybody in the world studies like radio anymore. I'm uh, sure. Th- there is Which is interesting someone. because I feel like there should be. I mean, radio still exists. It's you know stuff is still going on, but uh, there is it was. It played no part in my education, and I don't even think there was a class for radio. I feel like at this point, um, any kind of academic study of radio would have to be like morning radio, like or AM radio, because right. everything else hasn't really changed much. You know, DJs and you know morning zoos and stuff like that, but like the political aspect of radio. Um, it could be Rush Limbaugh or NPR or something like that. I feel like that's maybe where the study, where any acad- modern academic study would lie, right? Yeah, or in like online radio, like podcasts. Sure. I know, I know definitely people are studying podcasts as we speak. Well, I haven't gotten a call, but, uh, <laughs> but that's all right. Um, <laughs> it has to be worthy of study. There has to be some, some deeper layer to it. It has to be complex. It can't just be, you know, sensationalist or, exactly. or propaganda or anything. So <laughs> I think that eliminates Look, this all I'm saying is that we need to get behind President Trump. He is our president, and okay. it's time. <laughs> exactly. Look, we're making America great again. We all know it. Um, so, uh, yeah. Um, so in so in that film program, and we'll get to what you're doing these days in a moment. But uh, in that film program, what kind of stuff did you did you study? So you just majored in film. Did you have a specific concentration? Uh, no, it was pretty much a general film education. I think uh, at Northwestern and a lot of undergrad programs, it's mostly geared toward production people. So okay. when you decide that you want to study film at, uh, at a college level, you, you have a few choices. Um, you can obviously specialize in a various type of like production technique, or you can go into the studies, which is... I like to compare it to instead of being a like an athlete, you become a sports writer. So you mm-hmm. comment on the action that's going on in a way that relies on you like keeping up with things right. and, and stuff like that, but not actually doing it hands on. Did you take any production classes? Yeah, you're required to, which I also right. think is a good requirement because I think so too. you really have to once you're in the position of like trying to make a movie and I feel like like you realize that there is no standard way to make a movie once you have a camera and that mm-hmm. like conventions, even if they may like just jump out at you, Oh, okay. I got to do um, like shot reverse shot on this conversation. Yeah. It's, it's, you notice the fact that you have to think about it before you do it. And just realizing that every option is available to you. And once you make one choice, it eliminates all these other choices. I feel like it just really 
is important to understanding the complexities of how a film is made. Yeah, I feel like um, there is such an emphasis, like from a, uh, let's focus on screenwriting for the time being, but I think shot reverse shot is a good example as well. Um, there's such an emphasis on like three act structure right. and all that. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I agree, yeah. It's important Pro to learn. Like, provided, of course, you, uh, you instill in the writer or the director or whatever that, yes, this is a, this is, this is one of the structures. It is a kind of a, uh, a, a tested structure, but it doesn't have to be the only structure. You can do what you want. Like understand this so that you can deviate from it if you like. Right. Um, and yeah, it's the same with, you know, a shot reverse shot and like, we can't cross the 180 degree line or anything like that. Um, but, uh, I was, I was listening to the, uh, the aliens minute podcast, um, hosted by our friend, uh, John Ingle. And he was talking about, um, the scene in aliens in which Ripley finally, uh, confronts Burke, the Paul Reiser character. And this is something that did not occur to me until, you know, when you're breaking things down minute by minute, you got to fill the space. And so they were talking about the way that scene was shot and that, uh, it's all it's all one long take, and it's essentially a two shot between Paul Reiser and, and Sigourney Weaver, and Cameron does not cut back and forth in between them. It's just the camera just sort of sits there, and that sounds negative that it just sort of sits there. More than anything, it just lets the action happen in front of it, and it allows the it allows a much more organic. Uh, emotional rise and fall between these two characters. Whereas, you know, if you were to cut between, I'm sure it would still be impactful, but there's something about just sitting and watching a confrontation um, that can be, it can make you uncomfortable, it can make you angry, um, all the things that you are meant to feel in that scene. And, you know, and I would say that James Cameron is certainly from a, from a, a visual standpoint and from a, from a formalist standpoint, I feel like he's pretty traditional in a lot of ways. But in that moment, he realized, I think this is the best way to shoot these characters feeling these things. And so, um, so yeah, and I think that once, if you're going to talk about film, uh, once you have an idea, like you said, once you get a camera in your hand, you realize, oh my gosh, there are so many things I can do. Yeah. Um, and you can learn just as much from a wrong decision as a right one. And yeah, it's there's something to be said for if you're going to study theory, at least have some level of production, even just at a at a college level. Right. Um, I think it can be very helpful. And on like on a practical level, you realize just really how hard it is to make something that other people will like. Yeah. Basically, something that doesn't suck because every film like every film school movie sucks. Uh, there was one movie that I saw in undergraduate that I was like, okay, this is really good. And I thought that I could show it to somebody not in film school and they would also think it was good. But I feel like when, when you tell people that you study film or that you're even making films, they're like, oh, that's, that sounds easy. Like, good for you. You're, you're doing whatever. But it really is hard to make something yeah. that other people will like. And that's, and it, I mean, it's still like that, even at the professional level. And that's part of the difficulty of being in the business and putting money on movies that you think people will like. So it's really fascinating the way that it comes down to just knowing people and knowing and like thinking that you have a way that to entertain them and in some way in filmmaking especially not to not to denigrate other arts or anything like that obviously uh, every art involves a great deal of process but filmmaking incorporates so many things and it takes so long that it's not merely 
I need to make this with the audience in mind, but to maintain your own vision for that long and be trying to communicate something to an audience throughout the entire process. Like I can't, I can't imagine how difficult that must be. And I try not to like when I'm writing a review and if it's a movie I don't like, I try not to be overly cruel to it unless I feel like there's some cynicism underneath whether it be on the part of the studio or the director. But for the most part, I at least try to find something positive to, to see, to talk about because you know, it's possible that when this thing started, it was a great movie, but just the process of working with a studio and just the wear and tear of making a movie perhaps turned it into something that uh, nobody intended it to be, which was not good or not effective. Wait, did you go to film school? Did like, did you have formal training in uh, making movies? Yeah. Yeah. I went to Columbia college, Chicago. Okay. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, I took classes on, I took screenwriting, directing and critical studies classes. Do you remember what like your early scripts were? Were they, <laughs> I was actually kind of proud. I, I wrote a short script about Hitler and Stalin on vacation um, <laughs> that I'm still kind the of classic proud of. tale. <laughs> yeah. I'm still kind of proud of it. Um, I wrote a, I wrote a, a drama. It's based very much on my own life, a drama about these two brothers <laughs> who lose their father. And then uh, I wrote a, I was in a film noir screenwriting class, which is a lot of fun. So I wrote a, a pretty standard uh, Mike Hammer type detective tale, even though I do not like the Mike Hammer stories. Um, but uh, with, and the main character's name was Frank Dodge, which I really liked. Um, but yeah, so I stand by some of those. The scripts, I think I stand by more than the actual films I made. Some mm-hmm. of those are pretty pretentious. <laughs> so Yeah, it's, it's amazing the kind of movies that you see in introductory film class. Like in my intro to screenwriting class, my first thing was like this romance story, a modern romance story that took place entirely on social media. And it was, it was about the use of like the ambiguous use of emojis and how it can lead to insecurity. And it was, it was like the most pretentious thing. <laughs> um, I, I, I got a friend out of it though, because they said they liked that it had structure and basically it was like a, a uh, something for us to talk about. And then my other one was... By the way, that should say everything that you need to know about <laughs> the nature of film school movies is that, hey, I liked that. It had structure. Yeah. Like, the fa- like Not even the type of structure that it happened. has any at all <laughs> is exciting to people. Um, and then my other one was very much in the intro film school vein where it was about artists and it was about the act of making art. And it was about this guy who like put his art in a gallery and then uh, he was like facing all this criticism and then in the end he overcame it because he like uh, put in earplugs or something or he like put something over his eyes and then he just revealed his art and that was it. That was the big statement. (laughs) I I settled the score on how you're supposed to exhibit art after that. I'm sure my teacher was blown away. Um, Yeah, it's it's amazing. Like the big themes of intro movies are... uh, it's, it's about artists and the creation of art, or it's about your first day of class and like waking up, no. you miss the alarm, you have to run to class, and then it turns out that it was Saturday or the professor canceled the class or something. <laughs> There's like five of those in the same class. There, uh, yeah, I think you're, you're nailing it. I think a big one f- at my school, and maybe yours as well, is uh, along with, hey, isn't my life so super, uh, super interesting? It's also, hey, moving to the city is rough. <laughs> like it's so lonely here. Yeah. I feel so anonymous. Like that was a big thing. And it's like, and you know what? I'm going to express this through like surrealism. Ugh. <laughs> um, I feel like 
I have no, there's nothing wrong with surrealism in film, but I'm pretty sure at a film school level, people choose it because they don't know how to structure something, um, <laughs> or try to mimic reality in any way. Um, then, uh, my standard thing, and I don't know, maybe this has gone, uh, maybe this is no longer practiced, but, uh, the sheer number of, it was probably like five, which, you know, considering what I'm about to say, like five is a lot the sheer number of films that I saw where there's somebody sitting naked in a fetal position in the bathtub. <laughs> I was like, do you guys, are you guys not watching each other's films? Because <laughs> you see this once and you're like, well, obviously I can't do that again. Um, but no, it is just cause like, Oh, this is how we show vulnerability. Yeah. It's how everyone shows it. Pick something else. Ugh. no, thank you. And then just so many people, and I'm guilty of this one with my own films, like just someone like gazing at themselves in a mirror, which I guess is like a nice little symbol of what we're all doing when we make those films. I wonder if that's like the most common shot in films. Like if you were to do a, a huge list of every shot, the mirror shot, the person in the yeah. bathroom, you know, both their hands on the sink, they're just looking at the mirror. <laughs> like it has to be one of the most common yeah. For sure. And when's the last time, aside from like, you know, doing your hair, when's the last time like you really looked at yourself in the mirror? Very rare. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll always take the time to, you know, like get a pimple or something. Sure. Or, <laughs> exactly. It's very, yeah, it's, it's, it's for a purpose. Yeah. It's, it's very practical. Yeah. Um, and, uh, there, every once in a while in my life, like I've looked at myself in the mirror and I was like, you know what I'm going to, but I always think of movies. And so I'm like, <laughs> I'm really going to look at myself because you know, you look at the same face every day and you're like, uh, but when you, if you actually take the time to like, look at it, you're like, wow, that's what I look like. Interesting. <laughs> but the whole reason that, so I've done that maybe once or twice and invariably it's always because like, Hey, people do this in movies. Right. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, there is, um, I've brought this up before and it's something I find fascinating, which is, um, the commentary for video drum, uh, released on the criterion collection, uh, James Woods, um, it does one of the commentary tracks and he said something that's fascinating where there's a, a scene where his character says, what do you mean? And James Woods says, he said, I can't tell you how many times in a, in a film or in a play I've had to say, what do you mean? And he's just like, you know, it's, it's, it's a perfectly innocuous question. It's one that people ask each other all the time. He goes, but as an actor, you kind of have to realize like, okay, I'm going to be, how do I not say this the same way in every film? Because I'm the same, but the characters are different. How would this character say this thing that hmm. I, as an actor and as a person have said a billion times. And, uh, and it's something that, yeah, it's, I, I haven't, it was such an interesting at the time. Cause I was fairly young. It was kind of mind blowing. This idea It's like the things that we see over and over again, and after a while, the only reason that people do them is because we're all familiar with them from film. Right. Not really in, not in life. And then it just kind of perpetuates itself. And if, if a filmmaker can find a new way to do it, then like, Hey, <laughs> give this person an Oscar, I guess. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I want to actually go back a little bit before, um, before Northwestern. Um, so when did you first start getting into film? Like I assume it was something that you always kind of liked and then started taking more seriously after a certain point. Yeah. So, um, I always really wanted to be a writer and for the longest time I thought I was going to be a writer of books. 
Um, but then I just realized that I was writing books or like stories in that back uh, back when I was younger with the intention of them becoming movies. So I w- <laughs> wouldn't be happy with them settled as books. And, you know, I liked movies as much as, as any kid. Um, I, I didn't really like seek out different movies. I didn't try to expand my taste in any way. I was sort of just watching whatever I watched. Um, but yeah, when, once I got to high school, I realized that I liked writing, but I didn't want to write books. I wanted to write screenplays. And I was like, okay, so maybe I should learn a little more about movies uh, and go somewhere where I can do that. So that's pretty much how that started. Okay. Um, but yeah, most of my big obsessions were in some way movie-related as a kid. And what kind of movies did you like when you were younger? I was big on Twister. That was probably the <laughs> earliest movie that I can think about loving. I was, and like for a psychologist, I was very into uh, Bill Paxton's character. I wanted that red Dodge Ram with the lights on it. It had to have the lights. And it's just something about just something about that movie that it just gets to me. It, it's like, uh, and I think it was very much wrapped in the idea of this masculinity that sure that was going on in it. Um, so I was really into that. All my pictures, all the pictures that I drew as a kid, uh, had tornadoes in the background in some in some <laughs> <laughs> in some capacity. Which, my, <laughs> which, by the way, changes the context of what's happening in the foreground. Yeah, it, could it was just, it all would, your all like all your pictures wind up being about uh, people that are really oblivious it would to be the world around them. Innocuous photos of just a guy like standing there smiling and then there it is in the background a, a tornado um so yeah I, I always get crap from that <laughs> from my parents and my brother um and you know i watched it the other day i saw it on tv and i thought it was pretty entertaining i don't, i realized that it's dreck but yeah. it's it's fun and it has a it has a cool aesthetic i think huh i don't think i don't know if i've ever thought of the aesthetic of Plus Twister. Plus uh, one of Philip Seymour Hoffman's greatest performances. Oh boy. I can't tell if you're being sarcastic, <laughs> yes, but I'm going I, to assume you are. <laughs> it's um, hilarious now going back and watching him yeah. in that though. It's such a nineties type of character. Yeah, it is. You know, um, I, maybe, maybe not specifically nineties, but I feel like I became very aware of that type of character in the nineties. Like the sidekick who's just, just so kind of awesome and laid back and, you know, <laughs> just not exactly a comic relief, but kind of operates as that. Yeah. And it's so interesting to look at a movie like that and look at Philip Seymour Hoffman and be like, Hey, uh, the greatest actor of his generation. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Doing this. Um, but, uh, first off, I'm also excited not to look, I don't mean to make fun of your love of Twister, but please uh, do it. I'm (laughs) I'm astonished that you described Bill Paxton's Bill Paxton's character as a character. He's kind of a nothing and it's not Bill Paxton's fault. It's just like, he's kind of just this bland lead character. Who cares? He's like, yeah, I mean, it was, it was pre-critical days. So sure. It's, it's very difficult to talk about it even, but he, you know, he has a resilient, like he doesn't want to be back in that group when he comes back. He doesn't want to surrender to the old ways and to his relationship and everything. So he, he has a bit of a, a character, but yeah, I definitely see your point. He's, well, and also Bill Paxton just brought, just always brought a lot of, a, a lot of interesting nuance to his, to his roles just by who he was, because, you know, he kind of has this Southern, he had this Southern quality to him because he was yeah. from Texas. Um, but he could, and you you mentioned like the masculinity, there was a certain, there was definitely a certain ruggedness to Bill Paxton, uh, that just sort of like, Hey, I want my show or my movie to seem more authentic. Oh, let's cast Bill Paxton. Um, and he just seemed like the, a guy that you would know. Um, and it just really kind of sells the reality. Like, and it's fascinating that he, 
that in the nineties and I guess even in the, in the two thousands that he got to be a lead actor in some, in certain capacities. Uh, Cause like he was in that movie trespass. Like he, he occasionally had like name above the title, uh, status, yeah. which was kind of awesome. Cause he's, you don't usually expect that from somebody who started out as, you know, Hudson or whatever in, uh, in aliens. But so you love Twister. It's your favorite movie of all time. Even now. <laughs> yeah. Even now it's, it holds up. And you know, another funny thing about Twister is that when you go back and watch it now, you realize that they're researchers and that the little rivalry between him and the Jonas character is like totally preposterous because it's just funny to think that at one point he was in graduate school, probably studying meteorology. <laughs> and now it's like reduced to this like action movie scenario. It's just really funny to watch the rivalry. And I actually hope that I have an academic rivalry like I, that. I was going to say, how can you be the film PhD student? How can you be that version of a storm chaser? Like <laughs> right. where it's really exciting all the time. Yeah. I need my Dorothy. That's what I'm looking for. <laughs> Oh, don't we all? Um, and yeah, and it's such a standard thing. The idea of like the, I feel like this is also a very nineties, maybe even an eighties thing that his rival is like better funded. He has better, the but technology. he's also, he he's like, Oh, he's also kind of a sellout. It's like, really? Cause he's doing the exact yeah. same thing you are. He just has more funding. Good for him. He can play the game a little bit better, but that he's also, it's like, well, he has, he has to die by his own hubris. Like he doesn't understand right. how these things work. The tornado is about to come this that's right. what you get. That's what you get for not being the lead, I guess. Yeah. And the mistrust of technology. He uses all the instruments and yeah. bills all about his intuition. And he, yeah. he just looks at the twister and he knows where it's going. Yeah. I'm sure any number of storm chases or meteorologists would watch that and be like, this is exactly backwards. <laughs> uh, technology is our friend here. We can't go by our gut uh, when it's life and death. Um, yeah, that's... That's interesting. So uh, I'm not uh, not trying to emphasize your your youth. Uh, you, like so many other people I go to school with, are significantly younger than I am. So Twister came out in '96, I think. Sounds right. So how old were you? You did not see it in theater, I was right? Four. No, I don't think okay. I saw it on theater. I th I've, think I've only seen it in, on TV. Okay. <laughs> so okay. Like on TNT or something. They, I feel like they show it all the time. Is that the kind of movie that would be that there would be like a a showing of it here in Los Angeles, like on the big screen, like at the Egyptian or As something? a matter of fact, there is a showing coming up. It's a double feature with another one of my favorite movies from when I was a kid, Minority Report, which oh, I don't sure. understand the pairing, but uh, I'm definitely interested. I, I clicked interested on Facebook. So. <laughs> well, I guess you're committed then. <laughs> so they can count me in, yeah. Um, um, yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, it's it's like I just saw that the other day. It's a quite a coincidence. American Cinematheque, after Bill Paxton died, had a, a series of screenings of like movies that he was uh, a part of. And uh, my wife and I went and saw Apollo 13, which not only does it hold up, but boy, oh boy, that is absolutely a movie that needs to be seen on the big screen if you can. Um, I'd say most movies probably lose something from when they move to when they go to a smaller screen, even if you've got a, a large TV and a, a really good sound system like some movies are really meant to be seen with really? the best possible sound and on the biggest possible screen. And cause Apollo 13 is a film that, uh, I think I mentioned this at the time that it was a film that I thought was like, yeah, this is a good movie. It's, you know, whatever. I'd seen it a few times on video. I think I saw it in the theater at the time, but, uh, I didn't care much cause I was a dumb kid. I was like, ah, this is a space movie with no aliens. What do I care? Um, but yeah, and watching it now, it's like, this might be the best movie ever made. I don't know. Probably not. But, uh, but yeah, so, um, 
All right. Well, I guess I'll see you at that Twister screening, right? <laughs> yeah, you definitely will. Um, so, okay. So you go to Northwestern and then you, you graduate. You're the top of your class. <laughs> I don't know. I would assume so. I, no, I was not. Okay. I was close, but no, no. look at you. But no, I wasn't. I think you're better than the rest of us. Um, <laughs> so then you went to UCLA, prestigious school, surrounded by charismatic podcasters. <laughs> There's a, we're all there. Um, so, uh, so among the, among the, you know, so uh, listeners know that, uh, one of the first classes that I took was called text and context. Um, and a big part of that class is, you know, you, you write this final paper, but that you're also, you present the paper, uh, to people. And, uh, and I remember your paper being seeming particularly interesting. And then later we were in a class uh, called Capstone and your paper there seemed very interesting. And there, there really wasn't that much similarity between the two papers. Like I would say that your field of study is not particularly specific. And I say that in a good way. Like you really do seem to be kind of casting a wide net and just pursuing anything that looks interesting to you. Right. Um, and so, but I did want to talk about that first paper for a moment because you said you were really uh, attracted to or intrigued by the masculinity of Bill Paxton's character in Twister. Um, and so uh, your first paper also examined masculinity, but in a very specific context. Can you talk about that a little bit? Right. So my text and context paper was about the social network and looking at the sort of the masculinity presented in that film and part of the premise of text and context is the text is the film, obviously, and then the context is sort of thinking about the history uh, of the moment around the film's release and sort of the reception history, so how people uh, received the film, the sort of reactions they had to it, uh, looking at critic stuff, but also looking at social reactions to the movie and things of that sort. So it's basically just looking at the film and then the wider context around it. So. In that case, I thought that one of the predominant contexts around the social network was uh, the recession, because it came out in, it was 07, right, I think? 10. Yeah. 10, 10. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm thinking of Zodiac. Um, yeah, we'll get to that in a moment. Sorry. Right. So uh, it was obviously in a post-recessionary context, and I, and I think that some of the anxiety about getting jobs and the economy and sort of who would be the new people successful in the tech world is sort of at work in the social network. But mostly I just think, um, I just thought the movie was really awesome when I first saw it. It was mm -hmm. one of, it's a movie that I saw pre-critically, even though I saw it in high school. Um, and it was just one that instantly clicked with me. And I feel like if it clicks with you before you've really started thinking about movies, then there's definitely something there. Hmm. Um, and I just really liked the characters and part of what I was doing with the paper was sort of working through the fact that while I love the characters, I love Mark and Eduardo and all those people, uh, that they have problematic parts of their personality, especially as it relates to gender and sort of exploiting uh, the women in the film. And um, that's basically sort of the, the... When they acknowledge they're there at all. Right. And that's the basis of their success, essentially. And uh, sort of it definitely... Uh, informs the model of success that is at work in the film. But that sounds very academic. I hope that didn't come off too uh, airy and intellectual. But Oh, it's, pre <laughs> it's perfectly fine. Um, 
You know, and it is interesting um, because masculinity in film or really any artistic medium is something I've found fascinating for a long time. And one thing that, I don't know, this might be an unpopular opinion. I don't know. Um, It probably is. Most things are at this point. Um, That, you know, masculinity has so many elements to it. And we can also go ahead and say toxic masculinity, which is a term that is used a lot now. Um, And I think... You know, you get movies like 12 Angry Men and Glengarry Glen Ross, and they're movies that I think they work primarily because it is an all-male cast. Um, and then I look at stuff like, because I've seen The Odd Couple, and then I saw what was called The Female Odd Couple, where the, the two main characters are where basically all the male characters are turned into female characters, and then the female characters are turned into male characters, and and in watching it, it's like, it just didn't, and the, and the script was adapted to it to accommodate that uh, a little bit, but the, you know, entire scenes go by and it's fine. Um, but, uh, and so, um, I feel like the social network is something that is, a, that is very much about gender, even if it's not trying to be, whether it be the way they relate to females, but also... I think possibly the competitive one-upmanship that you can find amongst men in a certain type of situation, I would say a professional situation. It's why films like Glengarry Glen Ross, Boiler Room, Margin Call, like why they work so well is because it's like, it's a, it could work in a different way if it were like an all-female cast. But, you know, anybody that would, I feel like anybody, anybody that would say, well, I mean, if you were to just switch out the genders, it'd all be the same. It's like, I, I really don't think so, especially because there is this idea, like a certain hyper-masculinity, and like when you get a bunch of men together and then they're competing for something, like stuff comes out that I feel like might not come out the other way. Uh, and so, which is one of the reasons why I'm really intrigued by this all-female Lord of the Flies that they're going to be doing. Hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and so... So before we get to your uh, your capstone paper, which I found really fascinating, and, and it will take us a little bit off uh, off of film, which I'm perfectly fine with, and hopefully the listeners as well. Um, so you mentioned Zodiac. Uh, so we're going to talk very briefly about what your about some of your favorite films, and you said that like your top three are probably what uh, that would be: Eyes Wide Shut. Okay. Uh, Zodiac and then Alien, and uh, depending on the audience, I will change those around. Okay. So when I got to grad school, I would I said Eyes Wide Shut oh. um, because I figured that they would I don't know they would be like oh okay or they would they would be looking for something uh, with a little more meat on it <laughs> and uh, or something that I would have to justify uh, and then. Basically, so wait, and, did you did you think that if you said Zodiac, everyone be like ugh? Who's no, I this, just this, that that bubblegum film. No, I, I guess I could have said Zodiac. I just really didn't think about it, and it, it's just funny the way that uh, naming your favorite movies becomes a way of identifying basically your essential traits in some way. Even though I think that sometimes it can be misleading. Um, so yeah, in most other contexts, I'll say Alien because basically I just want to be able to the person I tell. I want to be able to connect to that person. I don't mm-hmm. want to say a movie and they're just like, "Oh, never heard of it." Okay. 
I want to be able to make some connection when I tell them my favorite movie so that we can instantly have something between us. That's generally the point. And between those three movies, maybe <laughs> you have it, I think. Maybe, maybe not, but I feel like Alien is my best chance. Or usually I'll, I'll, I can switch it between Alien and Jaws, but I'll usually go with Alien. Okay, fair enough. Um, um, yeah, uh, and you say, you say that it's not necessarily, you know, it doesn't have to be indicative of someone, even if we treat it as such, you know. Right. Um, and I think that's absolutely true with you, because like knowing what I know about you, you seem to be, I wouldn't say happy-go-lucky, but you seem to be a generally <laughs> upbeat guy. And you just described, you just, you just mentioned three pretty oppressive films, <laughs> tonally. Um, what is it about these films that, uh, and obviously we could do an entire episode about each film, but, uh, but what is it about these films that you find so, uh, intriguing? Well, in, um, I guess for Zodiac and Eyes Wide Shut, I'm always like, in all my art, in my music and in movies, I like the idea of melancholy. I like movies that are sort of moderate in tone, um, that, that sort of uh, vacillate between something that's dark and maybe still like darkly humorous, but sort of just in the middle ground. And with Zodiac, mm -hmm. uh, Zodiac is also more just, I wanted to be a journalist for a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. Actually, that was one of the reasons I first looked at Northwestern because it's the place for sports journalists and other journalists, mm -hmm. obviously, with the Medill School. But um, I just liked the, the professionalism at work there. I liked uh, Jake Gyllenhaal as an amateur professional, but still trying to, working in conjunction with, uh, with obviously, the much more capable uh, uh, police officers and everybody, and just putting together this research project, essentially. And yeah. if I look back on it, maybe, maybe it has something to do with the fact that it's just about the research process and putting together information. Mm -hmm. And that's really what's interesting to me. And, and I remember, it was also pre-critical days, but I remember the ending so well. I remember the uh, hurdy-gurdy man. That's oh, yeah. That stuck with me. Um, and it was just, the movie wasn't outright scary to me at the time, but there was just something about it that was very off-putting that I just loved. And I remember that. Yeah. Uh, so I have, uh, in order to uh, get a bit more money as uh, my wife and I work towards uh, adopting a kid, which I think I've said on here before, um, I have started driving for Lyft um, late at night. You don't play hurdy-gurdy, man, do you? I do. Oh, <laughs> sorry. It's, sorry, it's uh, over and over again. Um, <laughs> no, it's... Uh, it's part of this larger, like 50 song playlist that I just play on a loop. And I remember the first night I was, it was like 2am and I had like these two, uh, like I picked up these two women in a bar. And so they're just in the back, just kind of talking to each other. And then hurdy gurdy man comes on. Now don't get me wrong. I feel like most people have not seen Zodiac. It was right. not a remarkably popular film at the time. Um, but I'd seen it. And so, so they're talking hurdy gurdy man comes up and I was like, I'm just going to change the, change the music here because i don't want them to think that this is a, a precursor to something like all right are you guys listening okay pay attention because the next few minutes are going to be very important um but uh but yeah that is do you think that let me ask you this i feel like for film people hurdy gurdy man has become a terrifying song do you was it always i mean i i, I don't know and maybe you don't either was it always terrifying <laughs> That's a good question. I can't imagine listening to it and not thinking it was terrifying. Maybe if I had, you know, some drugs in my system or something, sure, um, where I was listening to it in like a field of flowers, it would be impossible not to read it in that way. But honestly, like with the whispering thing in the beginning, yeah. like I don't know how it could be anything but ominous. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, 
I'm a big fan of Donovan, and uh, so I have a number of his songs on there, and uh, and I I, I kind of had this. I've got like a, a greatest hits album or whatever, and so you go through and it's like, oh, these are some really nice songs. Then it gets to that, it's like, oh, uh, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna skip this because so I'm not good. I'm not in the, It's a wonderful song, but yeah. uh, so. Um, yeah, and it's a really powerful ending as well. And I got to say, and we've said it on the show before, John Carroll Lynch in that film is like one of the best performances ever. We, For the BPs, we have an award for the... Okay, let's, the title gets longer and longer. It's the Bruce McGill and the Insider Award for Best Performance Under 15 Minutes. Mm. All right. And the reason that it's called that is because Bruce McGill and the insider is the first time I thought like, I wish they had an Oscar for a specific type of supporting performance because, you know, there are some where like the support, the supporting actor has almost as much screen time yeah. as the lead. But then there are others where it's like, oh, this person is on for maybe 10 minutes. And sometimes that's enough to get an Oscar like Judy Dench or Beatrice Strait or something like that. But uh, usually not. And, I remember looking at uh, Bruce McGill and being like, man, he's great in this. I wish there was that. If so, that's why it's called that. And that's why it's going to continue to be called that. But I think giving Bruce McGill a run for his money is Ted Levine in shutter Island Mm. or maybe most likely John Carroll Lynch in Zodiac, who is just delivering this otherworldly performance that just like is, is terrifying. I mean, it's almost Hannibal Lecter-like, except so much more mundane. Yeah. Yeah, mundane. That's a good word for it, for sure. Um, so, okay, so Zodiac. And I, I also think it's interesting that you approach it, as many do, and I think I probably do as well, that the film is talked about just as much as, like, in All the President's Men as Seven, or, like, a serial killer movie. Like, it is... right. Uh, or Silence of the Lambs. I guess it's true. It's true crime, but still, like, it is a journalism film just as much, if not more so, than uh, as as a uh, an investigative film. Yeah. But um, okay, so you got your Zodiac, you got your Alien. You love Alien. Yeah, that's. I feel like that's self evident why why one would like Alien. Yeah, really, it's like the first the first uh, what is it first like ten minutes or so. That's just. Mm, that is perfect yeah every time i watch that it blows me away um but so yeah alien i feel like you get why i like it but eyes wide shut uh, okay yeah it's a difficult one to explain <laughs> and it's a different difficult one to show people so like i haven't showed uh my girlfriend my favorite movie of all time yet which is uh conspicuous i hope she hasn't noticed she hasn't picked up on it um <laughs> It's just, I, I, it fe- I don't want people to get the wrong impression about me. You know, the first shot is Nicole Kidman's naked rear end. I don't want to just be sitting with my girlfriend and she sees that and she's going to look over at me and be like, this is your favorite movie? And she I'm- looks over and you're posting up for a high five. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I guess I, it's, it's difficult to explain. I love Tom Cruise. Uh, I think he's really good in it, and I think there's interesting things going on in terms of his star persona in that movie, hmm. uh, the way that's sort of leveraged. And then I also just love the dreamlike quality to it, uh, sort of the dream logic that goes on. I love the the visuals; they're obviously beautiful. Uh, it's yeah. got a lot of the like warm colors and the Christmas lights and everything. Um, and it deals with you know it deals with insecurity and and sex and like. Uh, in terms of relationship and it's like it's sort of just like you know I love Kubrick it's like 
a master, somebody that you really respect talking about a subject that you personally find very important. And in, in that way, I feel like it's obvious why I would like it. Yeah, it's... Uh it is interesting that, uh, first off, is your girlfriend uh, supportive enough that she will listen to this? Because I, uh, I think you might have blown your cover there. I probably won't tell her about this. So. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's... Wow, so many secrets in this relationship. <laughs> it's, yeah, I don't, I really don't know why it, it stands out to me, but it does. I, I have seen Eyes Wide Shut once, uh, and it was the day it opened in the theater mm. i told my parents i was seeing wild wild west <laughs> because i don't th but i was not gonna i was not gonna miss a chance to see a, a kubrick film like first run right in the theater yeah um and i saw it and i thought it was amazing but i also haven't seen it since i think i'd probably like it more now and i yeah. loved it then yeah. um but yeah how many times have you seen uh, eyes wide shut out of curiosity uh, about four times now wow. and i only discovered it maybe like a year and a half ago so wow yeah, <laughs> That's yeah I, exciting. Had, I had my cinephilic phase like near the end of college so okay um so yeah yeah so you, uh, so you have a fairly i mean the film isn't recent but uh yeah it's new to me basically it's new to you yeah. wow so it really made an impression. Four times in a year and a half. That's a lot of eyes wide shut to watch. <laughs> yeah, and it's very long. And I, I, like, I love long movies because you start to lose focus on the structure, and it sort of just becomes about scene by scene. Yeah. What are they doing here that's interesting? And then it moves on. It, becomes, it feels like it becomes more episodic because you lose a sense mm. of the greater structure. Yeah. You're not paying attention to that as much. Whereas a tight movie, it's like, you know, it's hitting all its marks, and yeah. you can tell. Yeah, and I, I yeah I can appreciate a in fact I very much do appreciate a movie that like does not overstay its welcome. But at the same time, like like the new Blade Runner movie is uh, you know with credits it's like two hours and forty five minutes, Ooh. and I think it's two thirty five before the credits start rolling, and it's very meditative. It just kind of draws you in, and there's just something oddly if a film is good there's something very oddly comforting about it knowing that it is long and being like this is just what it's going to be for a while right. and you kind of feel like you kind of just give into it after yeah. a while yeah i guess alien is kind of like that as well you know that's that first 10 minutes is you know that you're talking about is very much that just right. drawing you in and taking its time um but uh so um and I think I've, I know I've said this on the podcast before, but uh, four years ago, Jen and I went to Switzerland and we went to uh, Gruyere just to visit it, not knowing that it was, I think, the birthplace of H.R. Giger and that there was a museum devoted to his work. And I was like, oh, how exciting. I'll, I'll go in. And uh, it was every bit as horrifying as you would think. <laughs> And then you, so, you know, you're seeing like all these weird paintings and stuff. And then you walk into a room and right in the center in a glass case is a seven foot tall alien just standing there and you walk up to it and you just have this feeling and I'm looking at it and I think, look, I realize that it's highly unlikely this thing is going to break through this glass and get me but I'm going to go into the other room. Oh, there's another one in here. There were four of them eventually. Um, and, uh, and it was really, I mean, it's beautiful, of course, uh, that design, but it's also very 
unnerving and to be surrounded by it. Uh, and then across the street was a, a, what's called a Giger bar, where a bar that is completely designed, it's like you walk, like you're having drinks in like the derelict spaceship. It's from like Alien. the most unappealing <laughs> place to just kick back and have a drink, some peanuts, <laughs> throw darts. It's like, oh, these darts are made of bones. Fun. Um, it's like, hey, take a look around you and now drink, put this liquid in your system. Enjoy. Um, now, before we, before we finish up, I did want to get to your capstone paper because it's something that, again, this does deviate from film a little bit, but it gets into larger media. And it's something that I think uh, is becoming more relevant uh, as time goes on. So uh, what, was your, what was this capstone paper about? So essentially it's about machinima, which is for those who don't know, which is probably most people because it's a very niche subject. But it's basically like making movies within game engines. So while you're playing a game, having some sort of camera um, either pointed at the screen, which is more rare, or just built within whatever like device you're using to play the game. And then just editing it together or assembling it in some way and just putting it on the internet for uh, various reasons. There's, uh, there's narrative machinima, which has to do with more traditional like movies that people make. And then there's ones that are probably more common that you see on YouTube that are like people commenting on themselves playing games. And, mm. I, and basically my paper was about looking at the ways that people who make those videos do so in a way that's, uh, that's very commercial and with, you can sort of get an, get that they have an understanding of how to make money on YouTube, even if they're just regular people making a video for fun, even if they're like yeah. a middle schooler just uploading a video, you know, they'll put, they'll be sure to have a page with their like brand stuff on it and link yeah. to other accounts. And I just think that's really interesting the way that conventions of, um, of this, com this huge commercial platform make their way into just casual media that people make, you know, for the hell of it on a weekend. Um, yeah, one of our, uh, one of the uh, semi-frequent guests on the show, his name's uh, Jason, he recently made a sort of a video essay about Tom Brady, uh, the, uh, the uh, quarterback for the New England Patriots, um, who I know about primarily because my friend Jason won't shut up about him. <laughs> and in fact, here's a fun, here's a fun thing. Uh, congratulations to Jason Eakin for the birth of his son, Brady. Ah, congratulations. His, yes. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and um, the NFL, uh, they didn't shut down his video, but they made it so that you could only watch it on YouTube. You couldn't watch it on Facebook or Twitter, which is obviously hurting the, uh, the, the views because people see that warning pop up and they just assume, oh, it's not working, when in fact what it's actually saying is watch it on YouTube by clicking here. Um, and the whole thing was like the NFL was disputing it and saying that like, you know, you can't uh, monetize this. And... Jason said, like, I, I don't want to monetize this. I have no, I have no ambition to make money from this thing. I just want to get it out there. Um, but that's the thing is, don't get me wrong, I'm siding with Jason on this, but why, if you have the option of monetizing on YouTube, why wouldn't you? Right. It's right there. All you have to do is like click a button and then suddenly, hey, uh, my video that has a few thousand views, uh, it's getting some money. And so there's really nothing to stop him from doing that. And uh, so I can definitely understand the NFL's um, reservations uh, about that. But um, what is your view on YouTube as kind of a, uh, maybe not a testing ground, but maybe I'll use that because I can't think of another term, 
as a testing ground for like filmmaking talent. Right. I mean, I feel like it just makes sense to use YouTube. I think it's interesting the way that various platforms now attract different kind of creators. So it feels like Vimeo uh, is sort of the one where you put serious work mm-hmm. that you've done. YouTube is sort of where you put, where you can put uh, your more casual stuff, um, even more just for fun. But I feel like it's definitely uh, where you can make a lot of money. But then in terms of... Uh, like streaming games, Twitch is now becoming the, the new platform for that. For it. So it's sort of confusing where YouTube stands right now in terms of what's the ideal kind of video that you would put on YouTube versus yeah. something else. So I think it's uh, something to keep watch on. I feel like games are definitely going to shift more towards a streaming model and go on to Twitch. But hmm. um, What is it about Vimeo that... I don't know. I think yeah. it's just that it's different. Okay. <laughs> and I, I like... I don't know enough about it, but I think it also has different quality standards, or it did at some point. I don't know if anymore. I feel like YouTube is caught up, but um, I think it was also like sort of an exclusivity. Like I know whenever people would give out Vimeo links to their films that they made in college, it would have like a password, and they would tell you the password. Right, or right. Um, so, but I think it's just distinction. That's it. It's just not YouTube because it's. I guess in that way, it's YouTube has sort of become classed or cultured in a way where that's where amateurs go vimeo is the place for the real work (laughs) well and but what's frustrating is like youtube is where amateurs go and make a bunch of money vimeo is where the real artists go and make Make nothing nothing. (laughs) yeah that's true so i do think that there's a it's it's kind of a, a bummer in that regard um i did have a question uh speaking of the idea of streaming and and uh Branding and like, you know, YouTube is just sort of the default, you know, at this point, YouTube is almost like Google, I guess it's owned by Google, but yeah, there are just certain things like, oh, a video online. Well, obviously I would go to YouTube. Why wouldn't I? I'm not going to go to Vimeo first. I'm going to go to YouTube. And so, uh, I feel like anytime any company gets that big, that it is just sort of the, sort of the the default shorthand for maybe even an entire industry. Um, I feel like I naturally have a resistance to it. And I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, Netflix. Um, and I don't know if you have uh, an opinion about streaming in general or, or about Netflix, but, um, and maybe it's just, maybe it's just a certain type of film person and maybe it's just us, cranky online critics. Um, I feel like there's been uh, some backlash against Netflix in the last few years as kind of this big monolithic thing. But like people are talking about it the way they used to talk about Blockbuster, which is kind of mm-hmm. ironic because Netflix was formed. The story is it was formed as a way, as a rebuke uh, against Blockbuster. Um, have you, what either did, in your own be- life or... or I don't think I was old enough to know the conversation that was going on around Blockbuster. I oh, just boy. know that... I used to like going there. <laughs> like, sure. so what, what was your sense of what people were saying about it? What about was Blockbuster? The is it just that it was like the sole curator for the tastes of America? Is it was it? kind of that. Okay. And like the fact that uh, it didn't carry certain movies. I think for a while it didn't carry Last Temptation of Christ because of all the, uh, the controversy around it. So I think it was, it was trying to, in an attempt to cater to like a, a larger customer base, it wound up not really being a good symbol of quality film you know um it would as any video store probably would it it would emphasize 
just the big blockbusters it would, have, it would have just a whole wall of the most popular movie and then one copy of a lesser known film um which i guess i kind of understand because a movie's popular so you want to make money by people seeking it out but uh but yeah i think people had a problem with that and uh what they saw as censorship within blockbuster and it's just the most it was the biggest company i right. think i think film people being artistically minded it's like screw that you know screw the, that corporation or whatever i'm all like i'm all in favor of huge steaming <laughs> things it's like i'm like you know there was a time where it was awesome that you have a la carte and you can go all these different subscription services and basically get whatever you want from somewhere but now i feel like i have so many monthly subscriptions and it's like yeah. they're all like under ten dollars so it's like oh it's only under ten dollars i can get it what what's the point but i feel like I'm starting to wish that I did have some consolidated form, like a one, yeah. like a one-stop shop type thing. But I definitely see the problems of it's it's worth looking into the algorithms that sort of curate yeah. what movies people see, what what gets recommended, um, and it, it's interesting because I feel like that's I feel like now that they're now that Netflix is just so big, it has to think about things like that, which they probably no. didn't anticipate when they first started. Yeah, and especially now that they're making their own content, right. you know, they are. I, I feel like I, there are people at school I could talk to about this, but I feel like it's not maybe not a monopoly, but it does kind of seem like vertical integration when Netflix is making, yeah. when it is the exhibitor and the producer of things. But I'm not sure if that's actually true or right. if it's, I don't know if, if they streaming got, even If they works. got into TV production, then that's when we need to start looking out for things. <laughs> if they like tied it, somehow tied Netflix to the specific TVs that they released. Oh, okay. Yes, be, I guess that that's true. That would be full vertical. Um, although, the, you know, there are some uh, Blu-ray players that literally have a Netflix button on yeah. the remote. So I guess there's that. But yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I find that like there have been so many articles written in the last, I feel like, two years about people talking about Netflix being just kind of this monolithic thing and people criticizing it for not championing movies. It's more that it's just like Netflix does not care about the quality of the films that it has. It just right. wants to just get you with like, look at how many movies we have. Never mind that 90% of them are not interesting to you, but look at how many of them we have. For just this, for this monthly fee, come on! What are you not going to do it? <laughs> um, but meanwhile, their their like selection of classic films is like paltry, <laughs> and there are movies like from the eighties that it considers classics. Right. So it's very uh, it's very depressing. But um, but yeah, so um, so we do need to probably uh, get going. So I will I will uh, throw this out there. Have you seen Have you seen any movies lately? Uh, I know that school has started up recently, and so you might not have had any time. Crap! Um, I can't I, I can't think of the last movie I saw. I know I saw. Oh, I saw it recently. That's it. What'd you think? Um, I think <laughs> I think it's it, it felt a little bloated. I feel like there were too many kids that it couldn't really get in depth <laughs> with any one of the kids. And uh, you know, I thought it was fun. I feel like like good for them for making a successful R-rated movie. I like when movies that aren't big franchises, even though it was in a, it's an adaptation, succeed. So I yeah. like that. I, I don't know if I'll feel the same way about the next it or something. Yeah. But I feel like uh, having not seen Stranger Things, though, I feel like watching it that whatever it did in it, I can imagine that Stranger Things probably did better. Yeah, it's it is interesting that. Um 
Stranger Things is obviously influenced by Stephen King, but I and but Stranger Things was so popular that I won that I think the new it was influenced by Stranger Things. Like it's this weird cyclical right. uh, thing. But uh, but yeah, I do think by having Stranger Things be a TV show with multiple episodes, whereas it, you've only got two, well, I guess two plus hours. Uh, yeah, there's only so much you're going to delve into those kid characters. Like they are kind of, the performances are great, but right. uh, but I think the characters are summed up a little bit. And one, one thing I'm really jealous of the movie as a former person who wanted to be a creative person is just just like the the perfect visual iconography that they have like the red balloon yeah. the the gutter thing that's like everybody recognizes that instantly it translates so well to ads yeah. the red balloon especially the the red balloon you can show yeah. that anywhere and people will think of it that's yeah. like a like a marketing person's dream right there to have that scene <laughs> you have the red balloon the yellow jacket the big open storm drain like yeah. it just clicks it makes sense <laughs> It is a pretty iconic uh, early scene, even from the original miniseries. Like it's just so much. Like there's the boat, there's yeah. the the slicker. It's raining. There's the storm drain and a clown in it and a red balloon. Like yeah, it's like when they made the new film. Like that scene, they made some changes to it, but not really. It's pretty much as it is in the book and as it is in the miniseries because. It's already pretty perfect. You don't really need right. to make a lot of changes. But um, did you feel like the film was too, you know, you mentioned like from an art direction standpoint, do you feel like the film was too art directed? That's my view. Sometimes, yeah. In costuming, I felt like that especially. It was sure. just like, it was just like someone's fantasy about what kids used to wear back yeah. in those days. You know, you have like the high top chucks with the, like the long yeah. socks and the stripes and everything and the cutoff shorts. I was yeah. like, okay, this is a little on the nose. Uh, I'm not sure people would go out like this. Uh, so per it was just, it just seemed too perfect in some sense. So yeah, I would, I would agree. Um, and that house. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> like, look, I get it's dilapidated and stuff, but for Pete's sake, it literally looks like Edward Scissorhands. Like they were, they're living in this kind of idyllic community and then, oh my gosh, we just wandered into right. a German expressionist film or something. Um, but yeah. And, uh, but it's uh, but you liked it. You thought it was uh, yeah. I don't have a problem with it. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's whatever. <laughs> it's whatever. Um, but I do feel like I feel like the second one could be good, but I feel like it can't be as good because well, now it's just a bunch of grown-ups fighting this thing. Right. Honestly, I feel like the story is interesting with when it's only the grown-ups. I like. I think it's it's better with either both of them together or only the grown-ups. I feel like it's more interesting as a story of them coming back and dealing with childhood fears rather than being kids and dealing with the fears in that moment. I just like that extra layer. Hmm. I feel like that's that's where the story starts for me. I wonder when the uh, when the second film comes out. I assume somebody because I I'm kind of a sucker for fan edits. I find them interesting, um, and the book is structured in a way where it's it kind of cuts back and forth between the past and present. I wonder if someone will take both films and cut them together so that it yeah. does go back and forth and these things are happening seemingly simultaneously. Um, and I wonder how effective that would be. I'm sure they'll have that. Definitely. Yeah. I, I, I'm sure it would, I wouldn't be surprised if even the director came out with an official version like that. That'd be neat. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was curious, uh, cause I know that you are at the moment you're taking a, like a video essay class. Um, and then talking about, Machinima? Is that how you say yeah, it? Yeah. Um, and the idea of just people working 
within, you know, confines and also trying to uh, get involved in like the filmmaking process uh, in some way. Um, have there, I assume, that, have there been like any books or classes written uh, or, or, or put out there about the fan edit? Like from an academic standpoint, I feel like you're more plugged in than I am. Like what is the, what is the view on fan edits? Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a, a lot of research about like remix culture. That's okay. probably what you'll find. Um, for anyone who's interested, you can find, uh, books by Henry Jenkins. He's really like the one of the most popular scholars, and he's all about uh, fan communities and practices and like online forums and sort of making meaning out of the texts, out of the films. Sorry. Mm -hmm. um, oh, thank you. That aren't maybe necessarily there, and about fan fiction. So you can find Henry Jenkins' books. They're very accessible mm -hmm. by design to a popular audience. Yeah. And he has a blog that's designed for for uh, regular audiences yeah. as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're definitely looking at the ways. Research is basically looking into the complex ways uh, that fans make meaning that maybe necessarily the film didn't want them to make or uh, that's just enabled by technology and editing and stuff like that. So there is a lot of interest and it's, uh, for the most part, leaning on the side of this stuff is really complex and meaningful. So it's not just like derogatory by any means. I think that actually is one of the, one of the differences between... Uh, academia and the critical world like there's a lot of overlap but I do think that critics tend to be in a way that I that I respect and probably a way that I that I embrace they tend to look at the film and say this is what it is and this is what we have to go by and yes maybe they'll look at they'll read interviews with the filmmaker or they'll conduct interviews with the filmmaker but I think for the most part it's like this is what we have to go on and this is what we're going to go on um, but I do think academia is like no we need to gather as much stuff about this as well to an to analyze it in its you know in the context of itself but also in the larger discussion and and so I feel like I definitely know that um, there has been resistance in the critical community to fan edits because it's just like, no, 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 this isn't like you can interpret a film however you want. You can say you like it, you don't like it, it's effective, it's not. But you, you really shouldn't be doing this and then comment and then acting as though it is a new thing. Um, right. You know, you hear about like the Topher Grace um fan edit of the the prequels um there's the what i've which i've watched and i enjoy the token cut of the hobbit which takes the three movies and cuts it down mm -hmm. to like one four-hour film that is way more effective and and i look at that and i'm like i really like this movie it's like yeah but it's not actually a movie because the director never had this in mind all of this is embedded within these larger movies with that you don't like but that's how you should look at them like that's the critic in me, but I feel like the academic would say like, yeah, but it's all, it's all kind of valid. Right. Yeah. There's a, so a lot of, there's also uh, research into industry sanctioned fan remixes. So mm. like for star Wars, like George Lucas, uh, and Lucas films would host competitions to make star Wars re-edits and they would like award the best one. And so there's been interest in that and sort of the way that it validates certain kinds of fan engagement, but still within the confines that they decide. And that's sort of the problematic area of it. They're yeah. like, you can, you can play with all our properties, but it has to be according to these rules right. and it's within our boundaries. So there's some, uh, some problems with that, but yeah. Yeah. The, the democratization of, 
I'd say the internet in general, but also just like digital uh, editing and digital photography is like anybody can do anything and they can do it very effectively um, to such a degree that, you know, you can watch some of these films and be like, wow, this is really great. This is like its own thing. It doesn't even feel like patched together from something larger. Like people, like I, I've done a couple of not even fan edits, but they're just kind of experiments that I do just for myself. But because it's just for myself, I'm also very forgiving of like, okay, I don't need a complex edit here. It's fine. I'm, uh, but yeah, there are people that like that, that token cut for the most, for the most part, it's pretty seamless from one sequence to the next. And it does just feel like one fluid film. And I know that it's not, I know that it's not a separate entity, but it certainly feels like it. And that is, that is because people are so, so much more tech savvy, which I guess speaks to kind of what you're talking about with the uh, machinima is that like people can you utilize so many different technologies to make something polished and professional and really effective. Um, but, uh, okay, well, we've been going for a while, so I think, uh, we'll probably need to, to end it there. But, um, but I uh, did want to let everyone know that you can uh, go to battleshippretention.com and check out our various articles and other episodes. You can uh, email David, David at battleshippretension.com, or me, Tyler, at battleshippretension.com. You can follow David on Twitter, at DavyPretension, and me, at TylerPretension. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram. Okay, I think that covers everything there. Uh, do check out my other podcast, More Than One Lesson. This week, uh, we've kicked off Halloween times with a discussion of Death Note, speaking of uh, Netflix, and uh, a big part of that discussion, incidentally, um, and maybe it's a conversation we shouldn't be having, is that that is a movie that should have been a TV show, and it's hard, and when you see it so obviously as how it should be, and how Netflix easily could have done it, it's hard to look at it solely as it is. Um, but uh, you can find that at morethanonelesson.com. Uh, Brandon, is do you have any work uh, that is available online? Uh, or I anything? do not yet. You no, do not. But All right. Keep an eye out because one of these days, yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, we're you're going to be the king of the internet someday. Yeah. Um, but uh, okay. Well, thank you so much for for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This was very fun. Absolutely. And uh, thank you everybody for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye.